0: God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today and thank you so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there, so we bring that service to you wherever you are, anywhere in Israel, anywhere in the world. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to the book of Genesis? Of course, that's where we've been studying the last several weeks. And we're at chapter 33 today. So turn there if you don't mind. And we're going to be showing those up here in the video for you just to make it easier for you to follow along, as you know. I'd like to talk to you today about did you see God work? You know, so many times in life people ask God for help And they pray to him to intervene in a situation that they're facing, a trial that they're in. But when he answers them, they don't always recognize what he's done or that he's answered. They go about their business afterward thinking, well, I guess God just didn't answer my prayers. Instead, things just seem to work out another way. They think their problems went away because of some coincidence or because somehow the circumstances just happened to change in their favor. But in reality, they had thought God would only work in one way, the way that they were imagining, when instead, He worked in another way. In Genesis 33 today, we're seeing that God has somehow seen Yaakov, Jacob, as you would say in English. He's somehow seen Yaakov through all of these other situations over the years, the last 20 years or so, to bring him to the point that he is in this journey. But there's one more danger on up ahead for Yaakov, and it's the most dangerous one yet. At this very moment in the scriptures, Yaakov's brother Esau is on his way to intercept Yaakov, and Esau has 400 men with him. If Esau was just coming to greet Yaakov, then why would he need to bring all of those men? It's looking pretty bad, it looks like to me. It's looking like Yaakov and his family are in for some trouble. Now Yaakov senses the danger, and the night before, he's poured out his heart to God, asking the Lord to somehow save him and his family. Yaakov's mind is trying to think of every way that he can to save his wives and his children, in addition to his own life, but they become first in his life. And like his body, his mind is weary from the journey. It's weary from the stress. The worry has taken its toll, and all of Yaakov's plans so far have failed to stop his brother Esau from coming their way. And now the time has come. Esau is arriving in Yaakov's camp, and in verse 1 it says, Now Yaakov lifted his eyes, And looked, and there Esau was coming. And with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. These were the women that he had had children through, you may recall. And in verse 2 it says, And he put the maidservants and their children in the front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel, or Rachel as you would say in English, Rachel and Joseph were last. Now, after all of that worry, all those sleepless hours, Yaakov looks up and he sees Esau. And he's got 400 men with him. Not only that, but Yaakov's hip is out of place. He can't fight. He can't run. Remember last week, he wrestled with the Lord. And the Lord touched his hip and it became out of joint. So now it's out of joint, he can't fight, he can't run, and he's having a real hard time just simply walking. Things don't look good. Imagine the thoughts crossing Yaakov's mind now. Imagine the conflict raging inside. Does he believe the terrifying fear of his thoughts? Or does he believe, truly believe the Lord who has promised to take care of him and to bring him back safely to his home and his family? You can almost hear him thinking, "Okay, God, here I am. (laughs) And God, here's Esau. Where are you, God? Are you here with me? You can hear him thinking that, it seems like. If you were in that same situation, that's what you'd be thinking, right? And one last effort to appease Esau Yaakov positions his family to try to greet Esau and hopefully turn away from him the wrath that he might be harboring from Jacob stealing his blessing and from him selling and getting and gaining by unethical behavior his birthright from him earlier, 20 years earlier. Yaakov doesn't know if Esau is still angry. So he puts the handmaidens, And their children that he had through them in front of the procession. And Leah and her children following them. And then he positioned Rachel and Joseph, his son Joseph, at the back. Remember, Joseph was his son through Rachel, the only son that she had up until that time. Later we're going to see she has another one named Benjamin, or of course you would call these names in English Joseph and Benjamin. Bevrit in Hebrew, it's Yosef and Benjamin. Benjamin simply means son of my right hand. So he's saying Rachel is my right hand. Remember, his heart was really with Rachel. So let's keep going now and let's see what's going to happen. In verse 3 we read, Then he crossed over before them, and he bowed himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And verse five, and then he lifted up his eyes. Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children that uh, Yaakov had sent and said, who are these with you? And so Yaakov says, going on in verse 5, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Notice how he's calling his brother your servant. Remember the prophecy was, was that the older would serve the younger and would be the servant of the younger. So Esau was going to be uh, in the blessing that Isaac, their father, had given and in the prophecy that God had given uh, his, his mother, Rebekah. Esau was going to be the one serving the younger. But now the younger one, Yaakov, is calling Esau his brother. He's saying, these are the wives and children that God has given your servant. I'm your servant. That's what he was saying. Then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, Then the maid servants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. After Joseph and Rachel came near, and then they bowed down. And verse 8 then continues, Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company of people that I've met? And Yaakov said, These are to find favor or grace in the sight of my Lord, speaking of Esau. Again, he's taking on the role of the servant, even though God said that his older brother would serve him. Now, Yaakov is humbling himself before his older brother because he fears him. And Esau says in verse 9, I have enough, my brother. You keep what you have for yourself. And Yaakov said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. Inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, Okay, he's putting it on a little thick now, you know, calling his brother like, Oh, it's like seeing God, you know, seeing you, my brother. He's really afraid of Esau. And he says, And you were pleased to see me. So verse 11 then goes on and says, Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And so he urged him, so Esau took the gifts. Now, Yaakov had been positioned at the back of his people, as we discuss these verses. You notice that he put the maidservants first. Then he put Leah, the lady that he had been tricked into marrying. And then he put Rachel, his favorite wife, Rachel, at the back with her son, Yosef. So Yaakov had positioned himself at the back of the people. He would be the last one that Esau would see. And if Esau was out to kill Yaakov, he would be the last one that he would get to. And hopefully he wouldn't kill the children and the wives before Yaakov. That is, if Esau was still angry about Yaakov stealing the blessing and having the birthright that Esau was supposed to have. So Yaakov is now positioned himself at the back of the people. But now, he's had a second thought somehow. He's running through the people up to the front and he places himself in front of everybody. Now what was he doing? He was placing himself to be in between the danger and the people. We call that standing in the gap. He was positioning himself between the danger and the people. Now, does that sound like what the Messiah will later do in the Bible? Positioning himself between the judgment and the people who have sinned so that God would punish him instead for their transgressions. So all that believe on him would become saved and have everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven because their sins are atoned for through the, Mashiach, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. Yaakov has really changed, you know. He was a con man before, only concerned with his own safety, his own wealth, everything. His all thoughts were only about himself. And now he's changed to a man who is willing to sacrifice his life so that others might live. So he runs from the back of all this group of people all the way up to the front, and he presents himself to Esau, his brother, not knowing what Esau is going to say or do. It very well could be that Esau is going to kill him right there on the spot. But Yaakov says, I'm going to stand in the gap. What happened to Yaakov? Con man before, now someone who's standing in the gap protecting people. What happened to Yaakov? He's now a changed man, isn't he? That's why the Lord changed his name as well. What happened to Yaakov? The Lord happened to Yaakov. He's now a changed man. That's why the Lord changed his name from Yaakov, which meant deceiver, to Israel, which meant governed by God. He used to be governed by his own fleshly desires and carnal nature. Now he's governed by God. And look at this. Esau said, I have enough, my brother. You keep what you have. Wow. Wow. That doesn't sound like the brothers that were fighting with each other earlier in life 20 years before. Now look at what Esau said. Esau, we know already, is a man of the flesh. He sold his birthright for a a bowl of red soup, red stew. He's a man of the flesh, thinking about the flesh, and yet he even says to Yaakov, That's not the way it works, brother. I don't want your stuff. I want you. I don't want your efforts to please me. I'm just glad you're coming home. What? Look at what Esau's saying. He's saying, I don't love you for what you can give me. I love you simply because I love you. And isn't our Lord, who is the true God of grace and goodness and mercy and forgiveness, isn't God the same way? God's saying, you don't have to do this or do that or get rid of all your faults before you can come into my presence. No, you just come to me. I want to give you rest. I want to give you peace. I want to give you everlasting life. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, therefore, let us come boldly into the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Boldly. Did you hear that? Like a little child comes before its loving father. Come boldly to God in the throne of grace. He knows that you have needs. He knows that you're not perfect. He knows that you still have faults. But things have changed now. You're adopted into His family through the Messiah. And you have your sins forgiven through the Mashiach Yeshua, the Messiah. And because of that, you are a child of God. Now, when God looks at you, He doesn't look at you to judge you, He looks at you to love you. He wants to raise you, teach you in this new life that He's given you, everlasting life, where you're gonna be with Him and His kingdom forever and ever and ever. So if you're in need today, remember this there's nothing keeping you from boldly going before the throne and saying, Father, I'm stuck. Abba, I don't understand this, or, Abba, I need help. Please help me. This is the uniqueness of biblical Christianity, of the believers who believe in the Mashiach, the Jewish Mashiach. Every other philosophy and religion on earth is based upon responsibility, things you have to do, things you're not supposed to do, too. And the responsibility of the people, and they, they try to fast, they chant, they give, they work. And in, in India, some of these people crawl around mountains on all fours just to show humility to their gods and everything. The true and living God who made all things doesn't require that. He loved you instead. It's not about what you've done. It's about who He is. It's not about what you are or who you are. It's about what He's done for you on the cross of Calvary. The responsibility of people leads to giving and doing works and some other type of humbling yourself to somehow, if you hope to, please God. But biblical believing isn't based on responsibility, it's based on response. Here's what I'm saying. It's not based on what you do, it's based on your response when you understand and you see what God has done for you, how much He's loved you. All the work has been done, and it's been done not by you, it's been done by Him. And so when He looks at you, He sees that everything is in order. Or we see in Hebrew, bevrit, beseder, beseder, everything is in order. It's based on your response to God's love. That's what the Bible says. We love Him because He first loved us. And He who is forgiven much loves much. Two verses there out of the Bible that you need to remember. We love Him. Not because we're fearful of Him and think that we have to do these things to be pleasing to Him. We love Him because He first loved us and we see His love for us and we are inspired to love Him in return. Do you get that? We are inspired to love Him in return. And then everything just happens naturally. You know, for many years, I thought that my salvation was based on what I do. I had to pray a certain way, I had to tithe, my responsibility was I had to be at church all the time, but then I began to understand that God blesses and gives to us. He cares for us, not because of what we do or don't do, because all of that is taken care of in the Messiah, who satisfied the requirements of God's law, and who gave His life for us. And now our sins, at not keeping various points of that law, those sins have been forgiven. And now we respond to God because of His love for us and because He sent His Son to die on the cross for us that we might be with Him forever. That inspires us to love Him in return. And when you realize that, it takes all the pressure off of you. You think about that for a little bit. It takes all the pressure off of you. You don't have to worry, oh, is God angry at me today because I didn't live righteously as I should have this morning. I said something that I shouldn't have said to somebody. I did something that I shouldn't have done. God, please don't send me to hell anymore. That's not the way it is. It takes all the pressure off of you. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, in the New Testament it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever simply believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how much God loves you. That's how much He loves us. It takes all the pressure off of you. Now when you look at what He's done for you, you're not serving Him out of fear. You're serving Him because He's so good to you. And you want to love someone who loves you so much like He does. You want to fellowship with others to worship Him. You want to pray to Him, not to get blessings and stuff that you want, but to thank God because of how much He's already blessed you. Grace changes everything. I love the title of Pastor Chuck Smith's book there. You should read that book. If you have it, read that book. It'll change everything in your life when you realize, when you recognize how much God loves you. Now let's continue on with verse 12. In verse 12 of Genesis 33, it says, Then Esau said, Let us take our journey. He's talking to his brother Yaakov. He's he's already hugged him, and Yaakov sees that Esau's not going to kill him. He's happy with him, and they're happy to see each other, and they wept over each other. Now Esau says in verse 12, Let's take our journey together. And let us go, and I will go on before you. In other words, I'll have me and my men go on before you. But Yaakov says in verse 13, and he says, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and the herds which are nursing with me. And if the men should drive them hard, even one day all the flock will die. So please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant, Yaakov, and I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock... That go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. That's where Esau lives. And so Yaakov is telling him now in verse 14, I'll go on at a little slower pace. You and your guys go on back. It's going to take us a while because we got flocks. We got children with us. And we'll go at a slower pace and then I'll see you later in Seir where you live. That's what he's saying in verse 14. Then in verse 15 says, well, now let me leave at least with you some of the people who are with me. But Yaakov said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, it says in verse 16. And Yaakov journeyed to Sukkot, built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Sukkot. Where have you heard Sukkot? That's the name of the holiday in Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles. And you see the sukkah are the tabernacles out in front of the restaurants, the stores and everything, a little tent to commemorate the time when Israel wandered and lived in tents in their wanderings in the wilderness, you see. But isn't it strange now that we see Yaakov told Esau, he said, you go on ahead and I'll see you in Seir. And yet then, it says that Yaakov went to Sukkot instead. Verse 18 confirms it. It says, Then Yaakov came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And he came from Padanaram and he pitched his tent before the city. When he came from Padanaram, he pitched his tent before the city. And he brought, bought the parcel of the land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money, probably of silver. That's how the currency was at that time. And then it says in verse 20, Then he erected an altar there and called it, listen to this, he called it El Elohai Israel, And that literally means El is a shortened way of saying Elohim. And then Elohai means the God of, and then Israel. Israel. So El Elohi Israel, God, the God of Israel, is what El Elohi means. So now notice something. For the first time, Yaakov is using his new name, Israel. He's saying this is the God of Israel that I'm worshiping here at this altar that I've just made. The God of Israel. He's using his new name. He didn't say this is the God of Jacob. He didn't say this is the God of Yaakov. He sees that God has delivered him from his brother and that he and his family and children are still alive, and he's thankful to God for this deliverance. And so he says, He called this place at this altar El Elohai, God, the God of Israel. Remember, Israel's is a country at that time did not yet exist, it was Canaan. But Israel was the name that God had given Jacob that night before Esau came when the Lord wrestled with Jacob. And remember, Jacob was holding on to him. The Lord had touched Jacob's hip and it was now out of joint. He couldn't run, he couldn't fight, he couldn't do anything. but he grabbed hold of the Lord and he was holding on him, and he would not let go until the Lord blessed him. Until the Lord blessed him, he said, bless me before you leave. He didn't want Esau to come that next morning without the Lord's blessing on Yaakov, knowing that God was taking care of him. And so how did God bless him? He said, okay, what's your name now? And Jacob said, Yaakov. Then God said, your name will no longer be called Yaakov, but it will be called Israel because you have contended with God and man, and prevailed. You have fought with God and men, wrestled with God and men, and and, and prevailed, not failed. You have prevailed. Now it's interesting to see that Yaakov didn't return to Saire, as we said, to meet Esau like he said he would do. It, it seems like Yaakov is still somewhat a little bit afraid. He doesn't know. Maybe he'll go back to uh, Saire there with Esau, and Esau will have a change of heart and... And remember all those things that Yaakov had done to him 20 years earlier. It seems he might be thinking that he just got lucky this time. And now he better just go on somewhere else and not take the chance for seeing Esau again. Because Esau might change his mind later. Could it be that Yaakov just didn't recognize how God had answered his prayers? Now think about this. Remember now in Genesis 31 3, the Lord had told Yaakov, return to your home in Canaan. That verse said in Genesis 31 3, return to your home in Canaan. Then the Lord said to Yaakov, return to the land of your fathers and your family and I will be with you. That's what God told Yaakov to do. He's not going to his family. He's going to Sukkot. He's getting some land there in Shechem. He's not going back to his family like God said. He figures that maybe it was just a coincidence that Esau didn't uh, remember the things that I had done to him. Maybe I just got lucky. He didn't see the hand of God working in his life. But Yaakov goes to Shechem instead. And later we're going to see that Yaakov should have simply obeyed God. Because things are not going to work out well for Yaakov and his family in Shechem. It seems that Yaakov is not fully recognized that God had been working in his life and that God was the one who changed Esau's heart so that he did not hurt Yaakov. He hurt all of Yaakov's cries for help. Now so many times that's how we are, isn't it? We ask God for help and he helps us miraculously seeing us through our trials somehow, but we don't recognize that God was working there to rescue us from the problems we faced. We didn't hear the thundering voice from heaven. We don't see the clouds part and the lightnings flash down to the ground. We don't feel the earth shake as the Lord does His work. And we think that that's how God does His miracles, right? And this big thundering voice and all of these monumental type of actions. And we don't recognize the things that God's doing behind the scenes on our behalf for us, caring for us. You know, the truth is, is that many times God works natural, in natural ways, doing supernatural things. Let me say that again. God many times uses natural ways to do supernatural things. And that's why you don't really notice them a lot of the times. There's only one answer why Esau would bring 400 men with him to face Yaakov in a conflict. And then greet him and welcome him instead. He had come prepared for battle. And then we see him run upon his brother, kiss him... And, and greet him instead. Well, why are those 400 soldiers there with you, Esau? There's only one answer to that. On the way there, God changed Esau's heart. Just like he did Laban's heart in the previous chapter, and Laban was chasing after Yaakov. On the way there, God changed Esau's heart, taking the anger and resentment away and replacing it with kindness instead. We don't know how God changed Esau. All we know is is it was God who changed him. Now, it would be easy, wouldn't it, to overlook God's working behind the scenes and not looking for God's hand working in your life. It would be easy for Yaakov to not look and consider what God had been doing behind the scenes, but rather just looking and seeing Esau is no longer angry at him and think that, oh, I just got lucky. Circumstances must have changed. It was just a coincidence, and he might have thought that God didn't answer my prayer. But fortunately, Esau had a change of heart anyway, and he wasn't angry at me anymore. It wasn't any coincidence. It was a miracle of God. Sometimes God works in natural ways to do supernatural things. And as you and I look around, we might miss God's working in our lives. But if you'll just take the time to think back on what just happened after you prayed... You can recognize that God has worked supernaturally in natural ways. Now, the truth is, God is always watching over His children. He loves you greatly. And when you give all your worries and cares to Him, He'll be sure to come through each and every time. I want to say that again. When you give your cares and worries to the Lord, He will be sure to come through each and every time. He may not always answer your prayers in the ways that you expect, but He always answers your prayers. Did you hear that? He always, always answers your prayers. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. And at other times the answer can be wait. It's not the right time yet. But He always answers your prayers. And we know that everything He does for us, no matter what His answer is, is the very best thing for us. He loves you too much to give you something that would hurt you and He knows the future, how things are going to turn out later. So He knows better than you what's best for your life. So you can trust Him to care for you in life. You can look for His hand working in your life in unexpected ways, in what looks like natural ways. Here's what I'm saying it might look like a coincidence to you. That's no coincidence. God was working behind the scenes to make that thing happen and answered your prayer. He was working behind the scenes to rescue. That situation just didn't happen to change. No, that was God changing that situation. He works supernaturally in natural ways. You just ask God for what your needs are, Carry everything before your heavenly Father, Abba, and then patiently wait for Him. You're greatly loved, and He is faithful. That's really all you need to know: how much He loves you, and that He's faithful. He's all powerful; no one can prevent Him from blessing you. What do you lack? With God there with you, everything is going to be beseder, okay, in order. In this chapter, Yaakov is starting to realize that somehow God has taken care of him every day in all of his needs. He's discovering the truth that the prophet Yishayah or Isaiah would later say about God in the Tanakh when this writing would happen in the future. In Isaiah 43, through 12, God says, I, even I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior oh memorize that verse besides the lord there is no savior why are you trying to plan on being your own savior why are you trying to plan on other people being your savior are you planning on wealth and money to be your savior are you planning on all of these other things to be your savior savior god says in isaiah forty-three eleven, i even i am the lord and beside me There is no Savior. God alone is your Savior. God alone is your Savior. God alone, without anyone else, is your Savior. Are you seeing God work in your life? Are you taking the time to look for His work in life? His fingerprints are all over the times when those trials disappeared mysteriously. Those situations that just somehow seem to go away. You look carefully, you'll find the fingerprints of God. He was working behind the scenes and you might not have seen the work that God was doing in your life. But if you look carefully and you consider carefully and meditate on the Lord, the Lord will show you the times when He was working on your behalf where His hand was moving in your life. It may look like a coincidence, but that's not what it is. What was it? That was God working in your life. Take the time to consider the wonderful blessings of God, the things that He's brought your way, Look for God to be working in your life in every day, in every situation. There is no situation too small but what your Heavenly Father is not involved in it and working for your benefit toward your good. You stay in His presence. You stay with Him. Everything will work for the good for those who are His. And He will cause it all to work out when God is working in your life. Why don't you give your life to God today, right now? If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry and He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness, that situation you're in. He'll shine His light on that trial and give you light in your heart and you'll be given a new life. He'll change you into a new person throw all those past failures and shame away you'll be made completely new given a new start and he'll give you everlasting life in heaven and that's guaranteed by God himself now we want to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus as the Messiah and Lord today and to receive God's peace in your life you can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent his one and only son into the world to save you from judgment. Just pray something like this. You can even repeat it after me if you'd like. Just say, God, I do want to know you and have real peace in life. I believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, God heard you. AND HE'S ALREADY STARTED WORKING IN YOUR LIFE. DID YOU KNOW THAT? A LITTLE SEED'S BEEN PLANTED DEEP DOWN. And AS SEEDS WORK, YOU DON'T SEE THEM ABOVE THE GROUND FOR A LITTLE WHILE, BUT DEEP INSIDE, THEY'RE LAYING DOWN ROOTS AND REACHING OUT TOWARD THE NUTRIENTS AND MINERALS OF THE SOIL AND THE MOISTURE. AND THAT SEED'S GROWING. OVER TIME, YOU'RE GOING TO BEGIN TO SEE THE WONDERFUL CHANGES THAT GOD'S MAKING IN YOUR HEART. GET IN A GOOD BIBLE-BASED CHURCH. LEARN ABOUT HIM EVERY DAY IN HIS WORD. Talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do beautiful things in your life.